The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Across the Airwaves, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode of news, along with news and opinions on the entertainment industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me was a guy whose force powers didn't allow him to see the big shocker at the end of Star Wars Rebel season finale, my co-host. Hey everybody, it's Nico, and welcome to Across the Airwaves. On this week's episode, we will continue our coverage of the spring TV season as we review two episodes of Star Wars Rebels and our sitcom section including New Girl and Modern Family and The Big Bang Theory. But as always, we'll also bring you all the TV and entertainment news of the week in the News with Nico section. Yeah, let's get that news started on this Star Wars-themed episode with some Star Wars news and a little bit more in addition to that. Billy D. Williams to cameo in Star Wars The Force Awakens. New reports just flew in to say that Billy D. Williams will make a fun cameo appearance in Star Wars The Force Awakens. According to an insider who reported their information to the Sun, Billy D. Williams will return as Lando Calrissian in Star Wars The Force Awakens. Although it won't be in a main role, it's said to be a, quote, fun cameo that Billy's definitely up for. After his great appearance in Rebels, I'm glad he'll also be reprising his role in The Force Awakens. Great news. Sarah Michelle Gellar joins Star Wars Rebels for Season 2. Buffy the Vampire Slayer is headed to a galaxy far, far away. Sarah Michelle Gellar has joined Season 2 of Disney XD's animated adventure series Star Wars Rebels. Executive producer Dave Filoni discussed the casting news on Tuesday with advertising clients convened at Lucasfilm's San Francisco headquarters for Disney Media Sales and Marketing's presentation just hours after the Season 1 finale had premiered. Best known for battling demons on the WBUPN's Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the actress will now voice a recurring character on the 3D CGI animated Star Wars series focusing on the early years of the Rebel Alliance attempting to overthrow the Empire. Geller has lent her voice to animated series before, including American Dad, The Simpsons, and 14 episodes of Robot Chicken. In addition to starring on Buffy for seven seasons, she was the lead of the CW drama Ringer, and more recently she starred opposite Robin Williams on CBS's The Crazy Ones. Her major feature film credits include I Know What You Did Last Summer, Cruel Intentions, and the Scooby-Doo films, among others. Dave Fellini, executive director and producer of the series, says she is a huge fan of the series. The fact that her husband is the voice of Kanan might have something to do with that. But regardless, she is a premier talent to get for season two, and I'm excited to see what character she'll be playing. Orphan Black Season 3 trailer reveals the clone's terrifying new threat. One day, I'll kill you all is just one of the many delightful exchanges in the first official trailer for Orphan Black's upcoming third season, and we'll give you just one guess which clone says it. BBC America on Monday released a one-minute sneak peek of the new season, premiering April 18th at 9, 8 central, which finds Sarah leaning on her fellow same faces like never before. And when someone tries to come between them, in this case Mrs. S, who played a part in Helena's kidnapping, they get the full, that's not your bloody decision treatment. Season 3 also finds the clones working ever harder to figure out what they really are, although doing so will require them to face off against the militarized caster clones played by Ari Moen, while simultaneously trying to cure Cosima and deal with the constant problem that is Allison's husband Donnie, although admittedly probably a lot less of a problem now that he is in the know. Anyway, follow the link in the ACC feed now to get a taste of what to expect for season three of one of my top three shows on television. 
The Oscars reportedly mulling return to five Best Picture nominations. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences might discontinue its current policy of having up to 10 nominees for Best Picture and return to its former policy of only five nominees in that category. Quote, the potential move, which is being pushed by a significant fraction of the Academy, would be a radical shift for the 6,000-member organization and a tacit acknowledgement that its six-year-old strategy of boosting the number of Best Picture nominees has failed, according to The Hollywood Reporter. A large portion of the board has been pushing for the change behind the scenes, arguing that having too many Best Picture nominees has watered down the prestige of a nomination without boosting the TV audience for the annual Oscars telecast. This year's Academy Award broadcast on ABC was down more than 15% from last year's, and sources say there is fury among the governors about the quality and length of the show. This year's Oscars saw primarily art house movies nominated as Best Picture. The Hollywood Reporter's Academy source claimed to be worried that if they were to trim the Best Picture nominees back to only five, then in the future, box office hits and general audience-friendly films might be overlooked, and Oscar telecast ratings will drop even more. It's widely believed that if there were only five slots over the last six years, then films such as American Sniper and The Blind Side might not have made the cut. An official decision on the Best Picture nominee rule could come as soon as the Academy's Board of Governors next meeting on March 24th. I'm a little surprised any news of this was leaked before a decision was made, but I'll keep an eye on this to see if the changes are actually instituted. Hannibal nabs Zachary Quinto for season 3 role. Zachary Quinto will guest star on season 3 of NBC's grisly good Hannibal, according to TV Line. The actor will play a patient of Julian Anderson's Dr. Moriar for at least one episode, which has us wondering if the show might flash back to that time when she was a therapist and took a life while under the influence of our titled sociopath. Whereas Hannibal's first two seasons kicked off in April and February, respectively, fans will have to wait for summer 2015 to take a bite out of season 3, which will feature a significant time jump following episode 8. Tony winner Nina Arianda, The Hobbit's Richard Armitage, True Blood's Rutina Wesley, and The Divide's Joe Anderson will all be new additions to the show's cast this year. This is such a great show that I'm a little surprised it is actually a network television show, and maybe would have been almost a Walking Dead sort of hit if it too was on AMC. Regardless, this third season looks like it will be amazing. HBO talks with Apple to be launch day partners for HBO Now service. The long-awaited standalone HBO service finally has a name. HBO Now, as the service will be called, may even be launching in April in tandem with the Game of Thrones Season 5 premiere. According to the report by the International Business Times, HBO is in talks with Apple to make Apple TV one of the service's launch partners. HBO Now, which will reportedly cost $15 a month, will let people holding on to their cable package just for the sweet, sweet HBO programming available in its current HBO Go service cut off their cable entirely. It should be noted that the cable subscription to HBO costs the same as the standalone service. So if you don't plan to cut cable out of your life entirely, HBO Go is probably the preferred method of streaming all 40 current episodes of Game of Thrones in one weekend of television blood and nudity. But if you are cutting the cord, this just made that possible. Yesterday, the HBO Go app came to the PlayStation 4, functioning exactly the same as the PS3 version of the app. Could this partnership be one of Apple's announcements at its upcoming live event on March 9th? I would definitely guess so. This is one step closer in the battle for death to Comcast. So for those of you looking to cut the cord, this just made it a lot easier. Dan Stevens of Downton Abbey is the beast in live action Beauty and the Beast. Beauty has found her beast as former Downton Abbey star Dan Stevens has joined Disney's live action retelling of the classic 1991 animated film Beauty and the Beast as the Cursed Prince. Stevens left out Nabby at the end of the third season, and although starring in a few smaller films since then, this could be his big cinematic breakout role. Stevens will join Emma Watson, who is playing Belle, while Dracula Untold star Luke Evans is also reportedly in talks to play the super vain and egotistical villain Gaston. Bill Conan, who wrote Chicago and directed Dreamgirls, is set to direct as well. Unlike recent live-action redos of classic Disney animated films like Maleficent and the forthcoming Cinderella, which didn't use the music from the original films, Beauty and the Beast 
released is seemingly going to be a full-fledged musical using the music from Alan Menken and the late Howard Ashman, which instantly makes this a much more exciting reboot because, come on, who doesn't love that music? I'm actually really looking forward to this one, and that's not just because I love Emma Watson, though admittedly that doesn't hurt. Now, can we get The Little Mermaid next, please? Yeah, that'd be awesome. AMC announces Mega Marvel Movie Marathon. For brave Marvel enthusiasts wishing to push the limits of their fandom, AMC has announced the ultimate test of endurance, the ultimate Marvel Marathon. The epic film event kicks off with Iron Man at 6pm on April 29th and features all 10 Marvel Cinematic Universe films played back-to-back before the premiere of the 11th installment Avengers Age of Ultron on Thursday, April 30th. Watching the near dozen Marvel movies will take well over a day to complete. By the time the first all-new feature film, Age of Ultron, starts, theatergoers will have already been awake and immersed in the Avengers world for 25 straight hours. The full lineup can be seen in the link in the ACC feed now. Drew Goddard to write and direct Marvel's standalone Spider-Man film. As Marvel Studios chief Kevin Feige has demonstrated time and again, the man knows what he's doing, especially when it comes to hiring directors. Now Feige has done it yet again. He snapped Drew Goddard, the director of Cabin in the Woods, the writer of Cloverfield, and a close friend and frequent collaborator of Joss Whedon's, even rumored to have helped write the original Avengers, to write and direct Marvel's very first Spider-Man solo film due out on July 28, 2017, under its new deal with Sony to co-op Spider-Man movies. Goddard was handling Sony's Sinister Six before the studio put the kibosh on its own Spider-Man. Spider-Man franchise to work with Marvel and Disney, but his participation in a new Spidey film was never a given. Now, thankfully, it is. According to Latino Review, the next Spider-Man film series may be called Spectacular Spider-Man, dumping the previous Amazing and using the title of another of the characters' long-running comic book series. And Feige and company are looking to cast a young, most likely unknown actor to play the part through multiple films, the first of which will smartly not feature the hero's origin story, starting with an already established web slinger, and will feature the origin of the Sinister Six instead, and a battle between between Spider-Man and Iron Man, in which Spider-Man auditions to join the Avengers. This is great news and hopefully will reinvigorate the Spider-Man franchise. Sharknado 3. Mark Cuban and Ann Coulter cast as leaders of the United States. The only thing crazier than the concept of the actual Sharknado is the latest crop of actors, if you can even call some of them that, confirmed to appear in Sci-Fi Saga's upcoming third installment. Sci-Fi on Monday added two more names to Sharknado 3's roster, mega mogul Mark Cuban and noted megalomania Ann Coulter, who will be playing the President and Vice President of the United States of America, respectively. So in case you were wondering, yes, this is going to be a horror film. That illustrious twosome joins a bevy of previously announced cast members plucked from yesteryear, including Bo Derek playing April's mother, May, Jerry Springer playing manic tourist Mr. White, Chris Jericho playing a roller coaster operator named Bruce, and Chris Kirkpatrick playing a pool lifeguard. Sharknado 3 will once again revolve around Finn, played by Ian Ziering, April, played by Tara Reid, and Nova, played by Cassie Serbo, as they battle the title Freak of Nature. Only this time, the fight will take them all the way from Washington, D.C. to Florida. Catch the Sharknado when it returns this summer. And that's the news with Nico for this week. Alright, so with that great Star Wars news and more. We're going to get into talking about the penultimate episode to the Star Wars Rebels season one finale, Rebel Resolve. The team tries to get Kanan's location to free him. The search for Kanan began diving right into the action with a harrowing mission to commandeer an Imperial locker so Chopper could track down his location. Nico, did you like how we hit the ground running with action and how it filled up the majority of this episode instead of telling a character-driven story about the Rebels dealing with the loss of Kanan? Dan, with the great cliffhanger at the end of the last episode where Kanan gave himself up in what we said was reminiscent of the Obi-Wan on the Death Star and was taken prisoner by Grand Moff Tarkin, it only made sense that this episode would have to hit the ground running with regard to the action and suspense. I thought this was exactly what we needed and definitely what we wanted. 
Oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, with, especially in Star Wars Universe, when you're coming to a conclusion of something, like a season finale, it's got to be big. Mm-hmm. You know, the action's got to get wrapped up. We have to have lots of things going on at once. We have a lot of characters, you know, going to fight sequence and stuff. And I think this episode had all that. I mean, I would really say that both the penultimate kind of finale had that Star Wars action that we expect. Yeah. And they did it brilliantly. I just was having a lot of fun the whole time with this. These guys know how to do Star Wars right to work on the show. Yeah. You know, a lot of the episodes this season have been those character-driven episodes, and those have been great. But what we really needed here is exactly what you were saying. We needed action, and we needed it to fill most of the story this week. Because, as you said, it was the penultimate episode. It was building up to that finale that was going to be huge. And so we wanted it to start revving up in this episode. And that's exactly what we got. And it was perfect. Quite really, last week was that Empire Strikes Back ending, where they lost a member of the team and everybody was hurt. Yep. So they need to strike back to this one. That was great stuff. Now, on that note, the issue of meeting Kanan certainly bothered. It created a natural conflict between her and Ezra. But I was surprised that this did bring up more backstory about how Hera and Kanan developed a romance because a way of Hera explaining to Ezra why she made the decision to not go after Kanan. Nico, were you also surprised that we did get more backstory between Hera and Kanan? Or is this something where the writers didn't want to play all their cards just yet, so they have things to work with in future episodes? Yeah, Dan, I, I think it was that the writers did not want to play those cards in this episode where there was so much other things going on that needed to happen. And I think they wanted to hold on to those stories for an episode where we can spend the majority of the episode focusing on that story. Now, that is a different way that they could have gone about this doing this episode. But I think, as we already said, we wanted that ramp up of an action and suspense for the finale. So I think if this was something that happened in the middle of the season, then yeah, I think they might have gone that route. But I don't know. In the placement it was, this is the best way that they could have gone. Now, that being said, I was still kind of surprised we did not get something like that, or at least a taste of one of those stories. Something to kind of satiate our our super strong desire to find out exactly how these characters all came to be where they are. You know, we really want to know some of those backstories, and we've been calling for it all year. I'm really hoping season two is going to have some of that. But, you know, I thought maybe we'd get just a little bit, maybe a flashback or something, but I don't think they wanted to focus the entire episode on it because I think they're going to do that in another episode in the future so I, I'm looking really forward to that where they focus an entire episode on you know almost a little bit like out of gas right. and Firefly you know where I feel like this season was just really focused on Ezra because he was the focus and oh, yeah. I think if we went into that it would have taken away from that agreed like this, I think this was Ezra's episode get Ezra's challenge yes get again Clone Wars with that animated show first time was really heavy on the Obi-Wan Anakin stuff yeah. and then as further seasons came on get branched out into different stuff where Ahsoka had her own storylines, you know, Obi-Wan had his own storylines, get Anakin had their own storylines. Yep. And then they focused on other characters that were completely separate, like the clones and the droids on occasion. That's suggesting they do that again, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. And so I think this was just kind of establishing everything. This season, they did a brilliant job on it, because then we're going to get more of that next year. It's going to be a very good story. Wholeheartedly. You've got to play it right. Yeah, yeah. you're right. absolutely right. This season was all about Ezra and the development of Ezra, and I think you're right. We'll start getting some of the more development of the other characters as the seasons go forward. Yeah, and another reason to this, maybe it was, you know, they had to keep the backstory secret because it wouldn't reveal who Falker was. It would have hurt that surprise. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point, Dan. I hadn't thought of that. Like maybe there's some significant or a role that Falker plays in doing that. And again, with the identity of Falker, I mean, we obviously talking now know who it is, but I did have some predictions before it was revealed. Again, really, I, you know, I originally thought, you know, when the hologram of Falker was shown wearing a Jedi cloak, I thought it was maybe Kanan's master because we really we had seen all the prominent Jedi die in Revenge of the Sith. So we knew it could be a Mace Windu, those type of characters. Right. 
right, Kid Fisto, we, we knew it could be those people because we clearly saw them die. Right? I mean, there was no extended talk about that. But then, in the next episode, we came inside, Kid's Master was a she. I kind of thought that theory went out the window because Falcon had a male voice. Because voice, it kind of I thought sounded a little like Mark Hamill a little bit because of young Luke. Oh, okay. And it kind of sounded like that to me. Just, just maybe the fun thing to just kind of throw us off a little bit. I mean, obviously, it's can't be me, but you know what I'm saying. But I guess I turned out to be wrong in using gender as a factor because obviously, since uh, you know, we're reviewing this episode after the fact, we know who Falco is, but can we decode what was your prediction on Falco's identity when first seeing this hologram? Yeah, Dan, prior to the reveal in the finale, I was almost certain that Fulcrum was Senator Bill Organa. That was with you too, before I saw the image. Yeah. yeah, I knew he was involved in the fight, and it would have made sense that he was behind things. So that was who I was thinking was behind Fulcrum. And in a way, I was not wrong because he was indeed working with Fulcrum. But based on what the producers told me at Comic Con about the actress Ashley Eckstein, that essentially she was out of the business doing her own fashion stuff now and would not be returning to the series, I would never have guessed who Fulcrum actually was. So this was a brilliant move on the, the whole producer's part of lying to us fans, essentially, and telling us one thing at Comic-Con and then doing something completely different throughout the series. And the other thing is they might have not known if they had her at that point. They might have been in talks. Well, you know, a lot of times these these episodes are done almost a year in advance, you know, because it, yeah. it takes anywhere from seven to nine months to do animation. And so a lot of the voice acting gets done early on, and then they animate to the voice and to the, or the final animation gets done to the voice acting. So, and then they do some pickups where things didn't go exactly right. The actor comes in and does some voiceover to, to fix some lines where the animation in the, in the original voice doesn't exactly match or something like that. And they, they fix things like that. So like the whole process takes anywhere from seven to 12 months for each episode. Now you're like, well, how do they ever get them made? Well, cause they're making multiple episodes at the same time Oh yeah, and passing it from one division to the next division to the next. And it's, it's sort of an assembly line sort of set up. And Dan, of course you, you are aware of this and you've actually seen yes. it when you went to, it was Pixar? Were you? No, I went to uh, Sony Imageworks. Oh, Imageworks, right. Yep, yeah. Yep. Okay. So yeah, you, you've seen this work. I've talked with people in the business who do this stuff. It, it's just absolutely brilliant and, and intense how they do this. So yeah, I, I think this was, I think they knew and they were just kind of leading this off. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It, it's... They wanted it to be a surprise and it was for about 90% of the fans because there were quite some intense fans that went and took the voice from Fulcrum in the early episodes, isolated it, digitized it, and like did some almost forensic analysis on it and found that it, the voice pattern matched nearly identical to some Ahsoka lines earlier in Clone Wars. So they were able to identify her through her Maybe voice. Star Wars fans. Even with the distortion that they used to mask and make That's it more cool, masculine. Though. But I didn't find out about that until I was watching a little one of those Rebel Insider videos after yeah. the fact. So, And if you want you to see that kind of stuff, fans. go to our Facebook page because we, we link to a couple of those and they're just yeah. brilliant. Yeah, It's a lot of fun. Yeah, go on. You know, and again, we don't know how much we're going to see her on the show. I mean, I don't think it's going to be a big commitment to her because I think if she's out there too much, she's going to take away from everything else with Ezra and the crew and stuff. Right. This is this Rebel Cells story. Yes. It is not the entire rebellion. That is more told in the original trilogy. But I do want to see some interaction between Kanan and Ahsoka. Get Kanan kind of go, kind of think, well, maybe you should take care of Ezra. Do you know what I'm saying? I think there might be some discussion about, about that. that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because, I mean, I think he's working out that he's like, going to be his master, but I think he's like, well, maybe she should know better at the job. But then again, you know, she's going to say, well, look, I bailed too. Do you know what I mean? We're kind of in the same boat. Right. Well, she never she never completed the trials. He never completed the trials, technically. So, because if he was still her 
her her padawan when she was killed and he ran or you know well, i guess we'll talk about that more next episode but you know if when when we find out in the finale what happened i think we're gonna find out that neither of these two ever really became jedi knights let alone masters right. so neither of them is is better suited for it and i think kanan's gonna realize that he is better because he and ezra have that master apprentice bond already they they already have it it, it doesn't matter if he is a technical master there are no masters now i mean technically yoda and obi-wan are out there but nobody knows that or very few know that i guess kanan knows that yoda is out there like, somewhere but yeah because like ahsoka may know more but she's not going to tell them that but she might know less because she left and she was she on the run yeah it's gonna be interesting to see okay, i hope they do explain how she got to the point where she is now yes. i think they will i think so God, i think this means the follow is gonna get solved but again i don't want to talk too much about that because i want to leave the door open for the next episode oh absolutely because you know we, we have uh, a surprise in the next section that i don't want to take from, away from either so we'll just we're gonna go back on to this episode but yeah it's it's, it's just something that's very exciting to all star wars fans yeah because you all know that's been haunting me but with ezra going against kara's orders to save kanan i thought it was going to be called okay luke rushing in to save his friends kind of called city type of scenario which you know wouldn't end too good for ezra okay there's still a possibility of him paying the price for his actions with ezra making a deal but i think was the guy an arms dealer yeah he's the guy that they do all a lot of their business right. with yeah he's kind of like their badger for firefly fans exactly out there yes good so you know ezra made his deal to owe this guy a favor because do you think this is the right course of action for ezra to take it saving canaan could you think this favor that's going to be asked of ezra will cause trouble for him to the future this was a reckless move for sure but the rebels were desperate and this was the only thing that ezra could do in that sense it was the right thing to do because it was the only thing to do to save canaan but that favor he owes will be something that will test him later and could be a potential dark side temptation he could be asked to do something that is against the jedi code or against the better judgment of himself and and, and by doing it he could open himself up to the dark side i don't think it's going to be an actual temptation or an actual point where he could fall but it, it's going to be one of those potentials you know regardless this was the only way to save kanan and at that moment ezra can't imagine any price too high to pay to save his master will he learn that there is a price too high or will he be able to refuse the favor asked that's going to be the question he could be asked to do something that he absolutely knows is wrong and just refuse and say no think of something else i mean what's he going to do take the information back and not allow them to go and try and find kanan no the, the cat's out of the bag with that he can always refuse and then like just get on the bad side of this guy but the be better thing is to to I don't know, find a way to accomplish whatever is asked of him, but do it in a way that is not going to open him to the dark side. Right, I would think this is going to be a situation where he gets into trouble. You know, he's going he's to get himself into a mess or get over his head and he's going to be help getting bailed out. Yeah. I don't know how much we're going to go into dark side temptation anymore. Yeah, I don't I don't think so either. I think the only way he can come back is if and when we get to that point where Kanan is killed uh -huh. or sacrificing himself or whatever they do. Exactly. I think that's when it's going to come up. But again, we, we kind of saw in the next episode that the character's death can also, you know, sort of strengthen the Jedi as well. So, you know, we can see where that goes with those things. I'm just curious to see where this favorite thing is going to go, and I'm pretty sure it's going to open up a lot of things for season two. That may be a big part of, you know, the story arc. Another thing I was thinking is that the favor was promised by Ezra, but could the arms dealer try to exact or extract a favor from the entire ghost crew and force the crew to do something that they don't want to do because Ezra owes a favor, and it's either Ezra, you know, he threatens well, if, if you aren't going to do this, then I'll just kill Ezra or something like that. And so the whole crew has to go in and bail Ezra oh, out, yeah. like you were saying. So I think that's actually a way that we could see it. And they have to go on a super risky run or something like that to get guns for this guy or to, to move guns for him or get something 
and steal something from the Empire that's like ridiculously well guarded. I think it's something like that that we'll probably see. Yeah, and again, that's the best way to do it to get call the crew involved and you know making an episode that fits everybody into it. Exactly. Now speaking of characters that needs to fit into episodes or does a great job of fitting in, I really think that title of MVP for this episode should go to Chopper for going undercover as an Imperial droid. Got that hilarious scene where he knocked the real Imperial droid out of the ghost. So because Zeb liked it better. <laughs> I thought that was funny stuff. Really great moment to laugh at. Come on with all the action and craziness and oh no, is Kevin going to make it? That was going on. Again, you know, with all the lightsabers and badass bounty hunters and scary Sith out there, get the Star Wars universe. You know, we sometimes overlook the droids as characters who you don't want to mess with. Okay, Chopper reminded us of that by blasting himself out of the airlock with a squad of stormtroopers. Okay, flying back to the ghost with Kanan's location. Nico, did you enjoy that the role Chopper had to play in this episode? Okay, did you also see him as the MVP? You know, Chopper was indeed an essential member of the rescue plan for Kanan, but I have not been a big fan of Chopper, maybe as I was of R2, which of course is not fair because R2 is so iconic, and I'm not sure why that is. Maybe it's because while R2 would go off and do things on his own, he was always attempting to help the mission, or sort of did end up helping the mission in the end. Chopper seems to be more disruptive and more of a prankster than a help more often than not. Maybe that's why when this episode he acted much more like R2 would, that I liked him much better. You know, despite that, I'd still say Ezra was the MVP of the episode, and Chopper was the MIP, or most improved player on the okay, that's a good say. Yeah, so that, that's how I saw him in this episode. I like to think of him a different personality than R2, to not make them the same. Yeah, that's it, important. Because I think people get the, the misconception that all droids are the same. Right. Yeah, and that's not true. I mean, they seem to have different personalities. And, I mean, R2 is the only one that we really get to see have a different personality, unless you watch Clone Wars. Right. Get to see, you know, some of those episodes. But um, I, I like how Chopper's different in these. Different. It's hard to accept maybe a new droid like this because R2 is so iconic, like you said. Right. But um, I, I, I like that the droid, to make it his own thing. Get something that's, you know, that puts makes Star Wars roles its own. I like how these writers are taking things we love about the Star Wars universe and, and making it have the same feel but also putting stamps on it that makes it their own show as well. That, that's what's fun. That's what's great about the Star Wars universe is that Lucas has opened it up to let Steve so many different writers' interpretations of it. I'm getting the opportunity to make it, make it their own. Yeah. Um, I think that's what's great about comic books and that stuff and, and I think Star Wars has that same potential. But anyhow, Discovery Kanan was on Mustafar and Hera said he called up the place where Jedi go to die. Get in this episode, I think, with just the right impact to get us really excited for the season finale. And with this, I wonder just how much Kanan knows about Anakin's descent to the dark side. Because essentially the hope Jedi had for a future led by the Chosen One died in the battle which took place between Gannikin and Obi-Wan on that planet. Nico, do you think Lucifer is a planet that will haunt Jedi for years to come? Since it is kind of a symbol of their near extinction, could you think the mentioning of a planet marking the darkest chapter in Jedi history raises the stakes leading to the season finale? You know, I'm not sure how much or how Kanan knew about what happened with Obi-Wan and Anakin. So I'm wondering, did the lava planet mean something to Obi-Wan and Anakin before they fought there? Did the planet have a history to the Jedi prior to their duel? If the planet did have a history, then this episode of Rebels may have just made Revenge of the Sith even more tragic. Also, if the finale, which we will discuss in a moment, had taken place on Mustafar, it would have paralleled one of Lucas's original ideas for Star Wars, in which Luke's final confrontation with the Emperor took place on the Imperial capital, Had Abaddon, surrounded by a lake of lava. The design for that throne room was later what was used for Mustafar in the film, Revenge of the Sith. So that's a little interesting tidbit. All yeah, I bet that was because of money. Well, I think they also decided that doing it on the Death Star, on the second Death Star, made a lot of sense, and it paralleled what we saw in the first, uh, in, in A New Hope. So I, I think they liked that parallel as well. All, the door open for a big space <laughs> right. All I do know about Mustafar's history is that it was once a lush and green world where the Jedi built an enclave, one of many Jedi temples around the galaxy in the 
early years before the Jedi Civil War, which decimated most of the Jedi temples throughout the Galactic Republic. It was during a climactic battle with the resurgent Sith side of the Jedi Civil War that was so intense that one of the nearby gas giants was pulled into its current location by the force battles going on between the different sides on the planet, and also started the gravitational tug-of-war between the now unbalanced two gas giants around Mustafar. The environmental hazards caused by this gravitational unbalance forced the Jedi to abandon their temples on the planet, and it changed from a lush green world to the active volcanic one that we now know. I don't remember anything that would imply that Kanan would call it the place where Jedi go to die, and I hope they elaborate on that in a future episode where Ezra asks yeah. him about it or something, because it didn't make much sense to me, and everything I had read about it in the different comics and different novels that I've read in that era just didn't talk about Mustafar as a place where Jedi go to die. It kind of implies now, that he knew something about Anakin's fall, but I, I don't know. I don't know how he where, would have known about it. Where did you either. hear about that backstory of Mustafar? Was that in a book? Yes. Um, I, I think it was a comic about the ancient Galactic Republic era. Okay. So it was one of the Jedi stories and... Um, this, is, this is why what I think is... Uh, the, all of that is not anymore canon. That was all right. legend stuff now. What This is what I'm thinking. Maybe that Mustafar is like considered as the, the Jedi's like Gettysburg. You know, where a big battle took place for what you explained. Because uh-huh. you know how we look at Gettysburg as this tragic place where so many Americans died in this war fighting each other. Because so I feel like Mustafar has that significance to Jedi. That it's in the history. That there, I mean, if it was such a big battle, could assume that that's something. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Although the one on Dantooine was equally as large and was equally right. as devastating to the Jedi Order because the Jedi had one of its greatest temples outside of the one on Coruscant in on yeah. Antony. So the the other thing is, could it be something where that fight created such a disturbance of the Force that other Jedi that survived picked up on it? Absolutely possible. Absolutely possible. You're talking the Obi Wan and Anakin fight. Yes. Yeah. If Kanan actually knows about what happened to Anakin, because we we still aren't sure about that. You know. We yeah, don't know I think Ahsoka may know, but I don't know about that. Yeah, I don't know about Kanan. Ahsoka might have felt it because it was her master fighting his master. Yes. So there might have been a, a you know because they had such a strong bond, she might have felt it and might have felt his fall. Well, the know? other thing is is Bel Organa knows everything that happened. That's true as well. So he, he could have just told her. He could have told her. You're absolutely right because he would know about her link to Anakin. Okay, that's the other thing is, you know, they may not tell Kanan to protect Luke and Leia. Another great point. So there, there's that too. What I think would be cool is if they show that Ahsoka had some sort of a relationship with, with Leia. I think that would be cool. I don't think there would have been time. Leia died so soon after giving birth. No, they... no, I'm talking, about, I'm talking about Princess Leia. Oh, Leia. Like, she would be a baby, right. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you know? yeah, I see. Yeah, I was thinking uh, Padme. Oh, no, sorry. not Padme. No, no, no. I was going to say, there's no time for Padme. Although Ahsoka well, might have been aware of Padme. Well, yeah, they, they knew each other from Clone Wars. They knew each other, but I don't know if she knew the significance of her. There was an episode of Clone Wars where she taught Ahsoka how things worked in the Senate. But I don't think she knew about Anakin and... Oh, them being together. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Like, I mean, she might have suspected it. She might have felt it in her yeah. master. But I don't know that she knew. Knew. Right. But again, I think she'd have a lot of questions for Belagana, you know? Yeah. Be like, wait a minute. What, how does this work? Again? Yeah. I, I, I think she knows. But I think she also was close enough to Anakin and Obi-Wan to want to keep it quiet. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's the same Belagana. I think he had enough respect for them that he 
kept it quiet. Yeah. Yeah. But we can speculate more about that yes. in the in the finale discussion which yes. is coming up. This was a great penultimate episode that really set us up very well for that finale that we'll talk about next. And I was glad there's a gap in the schedule for us really to talk about this. Because I mean we love this show and I don't oh, yeah. give it enough time to give it justice. Because we got this great opportunity right here. Yep. So that's gonna be fun. And really we want to take full advantage of it. So we're gonna have a special guest join us now as we move in to our discussion on the Star Wars Rebel season finale with an outstanding episode entitled Fire Across the Galaxy. In the season finale, the Rebels must infiltrate the heart of the Imperial fleet to rescue Kanan. This leads to an epic battle between Kanan, Ezra, and the Inquisitor, and results in the destruction of Tarkin's flagship. Consequently, Imperial security on Lothal is strengthened, making their mission even more difficult in the future. Hera calls in help, but so does the Empire. And really, I loved how this episode started off encompassing just how great the first season of Star Wars Rebels has been. By nodding back to probably one of my favorite episodes of the season, Fighter Flight, because they brought back the stolen TIE Fighter, could turn into Disobedience's colorful masterpiece. Did all of you enjoy the writers bringing back something from such an enjoyable episode? Okay, I was flying a TIE fighter that stuck out like a sword thumb into an Imperial Star Destroyer. A okay, great way to stick it to the Empire. Okay, we're going to start with this question off with Nikki from the Helicarrier Podcast, who's here to join us today to talk about this awesome episode that got all sorts of surprises. Hi, thank you guys for asking me. I love talking everything Star Wars. I loved the callback to Fighter Flight. That's one of, I think, one of my favorite episodes of the season. And the fact that they're just so bold as to steal anything imperial that's that big really showed, showed a lot of character for them but i thought it was the perfect way to like stick it to the empire's like look we took your we took one of your ships and we made it pretty <laughs> we took this symbol of just of the empire this like this thing that inspires fear in in local people and they see typers like oh god here they come again and they made it a work of art and i really love that it showcased sabine's talent because she's one of my favorite characters but she's also one of the characters we don't in my opinion we don't know enough about we haven't gotten enough exposure to so i thought it was the perfect combat the perfect like use of the TIE fighter and it kind of reminded me of you know in Return of the Jedi using Shuttle Tidarian to break through the security over Endor and land on the forest moon it was kind of like we're going to use your own stuff against you and that just kind of shows how bold the rebels have always been yeah this definitely put the Sabine touch on things and I love that and actually it pointed out one of the Empire's primary security flaws if you think about it they scan everything electronically and not really visually which allowed the rebel crew to sneak a rigged TIE fighter to into the landing bay and create an EMP inside the hangar bay to knock out the power in the entire Star Destroyer. A simple yeah. visual scan of the thing coming in would have probably stopped that. So it's a good thing Sabine seems to know everything about Imperial procedures <laughs> and protocols. Yes. So I actually thought there was something in her background about being in an Imperial Academy or something, but when I looked it up on Wikipedia to confirm that, it was not part of her backstory. Am I making this up, or did you guys think or remember something like that as well? I thought I did. She has definitely some training that would lead one to believe that she she was trained in some capacity by right. someone. I don't know if it's Imperial, but then a lot of people also forget that Han was trained, you know, was trained by the Imperial Navy. Right, right. Before. It was so, the episode where Hera and Sabine were trapped on the planet with the monsters that were afraid of the light. Oh, that they talked about it there. Okay, but oh, okay. it's not in her official background on Wikipedia. Wow, that's that's wow. It's well, that's you know that might be something somebody missed and somebody needs to add because it's all created, you know, all that information is created by the fans. Right. Um, I remember saying she left the academy. Yeah. Right. I thought in the 
one where Ezra goes to the academy. There was some mention of it as well. You're right I, about I, it. Yeah, I think you might be right on that one. So I'm not. I've only watched that one twice. No, I only watched that one twice, so I'm not 100 percent on if that happened. I kind of focus sometimes on other things. This show is so visually charming that I often focus on like one story over another. But yeah, I I, I wondered about the imperial scanning of the ships. It's like, is their tech so low that they're only using radio waves and radar? Right. You know, to look, there's a little blip on the screen. It's coming into the, you know, and it's, you know, we scanned it and it's Imperial. But yeah, there was no, there's no like window over the docking bay. Well, it's like, you know, the exhaust port on the Death Star. Right. There's <laughs> there's no me. like cameras or anything because apparently cameras are, are not, you know, technically either good enough for the Empire or invented in this galaxy far, far away. Right. Right. Exactly. We just have hollow. We have hollows and that that's it. I did love when the ship landed though and the two stormtroopers had to make comment on it. I thought that was pure Star Wars. It reminded me of the comic ta- uh, miniseries Tag and Binker Dead, which if you haven't read it, it's hilarious. And just like, yeah, I kind of like it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's really so. Yeah, yeah, that, that's great. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I love the humor of the show too. Oh, I just, oh like, absolutely! It, it nails it sometimes. Just like it kind of says what we're thinking sometimes about. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> well, this thing with Sabine was just one of those classic moments as well. Yeah, because like you're gonna find this thing in here. But I loved <laughs> it because you know it's a lot of people feel Star Wars is like a kind of stick it to the man kind of story. Mm-hmm. You know, get sticking it against you know the corporate America or that kind of corporate machine. Yeah. And um, I thought Sabine doing this was kind of one of the ultimate examples of that. Yeah. That's why I like how she's this artist character. I mean, it really fits the concept and idea. You know. A revel and sticking to the band and that kind of stuff. So I really enjoyed it for that. Yeah, yeah Sabine, she's... I think using art is, is definitely one of the earliest forms of protest and propaganda against, you know, the big bads or the corporates or the, the monarchies. You know, it's like a lot of the people who were trying to fight against these things didn't have money and they were trying to make life better. So they would do it. And so they would protest through art or writing. So I think yeah. it follows along with, with history really, really beautifully because it is the most, one of the earliest forms of protest. Yeah, and um, it's, She's essentially the Star Wars Banksy or <laughs> or Space Invader or one of those guys, you know, a, right. a street artist. Exactly. A little and, more colorful than Banksy, but... <laughs> yeah. But I love how her Firebird, I think she might be the one who... The Firebird symbol she paints a lot is so Rebel Alliance symbol. I'm kind of hoping she's the one who takes her symbol and makes it into the symbol of the Alliance because it's it just has the right... It has oh, the yeah. beauty. Now, now that symbol means something more to me than just the symbol of the Rebel. Yeah, which is tattooed on my ankle. It means it's something about rebirth. It's like the Phoenix story. So I'm really looking forward to seeing if she is the creator of that symbol because then it adds something else to it. Yeah, if even if not the actual creator, it, she's definitely an inspiration to whoever does create it for sure. Yeah. yeah oh yeah. Yeah, speaking of kind of the man coming down, this episode <laughs> could have the Inquisitor try to break Caden by telling him he was a coward to leave his master behind when Order 66 was initiated. Do you guys think that Caden was a coward by following his master's order to run, or was he essentially doing what Obi-Wan and Yoda did, which was lying low until a new hope emerged? Yeah, he was definitely not a coward for obeying his master, but that does not make him feel less like one for not standing and fighting to help try and save her. It would most likely have been futile, and that is why his master ordered him to run, but what he has done since proves he's not a coward. By standing up to the Empire, starting a rebel cell with Hera, he has proven time and again that he is heroic and is doing his master proud by standing up for what the Jedi believe in and fighting the oppression that is the Empire and the Emperor. 
So yeah, Order 66 caught them off guard and his master sacrificed herself to save him. But by him obeying that order and doing what she told him to do and saving his own life, that doesn't make him a coward. That makes him a good Padawan, you know? And everything he's done since has made would make his master proud. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, I totally agree. I don't think Kane was a coward at all. You have to also we have to also remember he was so young when this happened. Right. I mean, this was 15 years ago, according to the chronology that they provided with us with. It was about 15 years ago. He was just a young Padawan. And what do Padawans do? Like you said, they follow their master. She wanted to protect him. That's her job as his master. What could he have done? I mean, we saw in Revenge of the Sith what happened to Zed Jukasa, that that minor character, when he tried to take on the clone troopers. Yep. And Bale tried to save him. Shout out to George Lucas' son Jet for that. So he did exactly what he was supposed to do. What good would have been to have lost another youngling, lost another Padawan? And her job was to be his protector and that's what she did but you can understand why you know he would feel like a coward but you know i don't think even he i think in those situations we all would question ourselves oh yeah so it's hard to see kind of the rationale when you're involved that deeply and you can tell him all day long you did what your master told you to there was nothing you could have done you were too young you couldn't have helped you would have just been killed but it's still that's the guilt that was your master that was the person trusted that was the person who you admired more than any and just like with you know obi and yoda she knew that this needed to the Jedi needed to continue and this was the best way to ensure it yeah you know in in the Jedi order your master is like the one person you're allowed to love you know and yeah. so in that sense the, the guilt is is even more profound for him because this was the one person that he loved you know that they have such a strong connection master and Padawan uh, master and apprentice and you know it this is the person that you eat sleep live with for you know well, 10 I, years or more and there was her being a female master. Well, she was kind of it, like a, a mother figure to him. Yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't matter with that. It would be a father figure or a mother figure right. for sure. But yeah, it's a parent because most of these kids are taken when they're less than a year old. Not taken, but, you know, given to the Jedi. Right. And mm-hmm. well, throughout their history, there were times when some less savory Jedi did take. But <laughs> yeah. um, well, we don't have to get into that. But yeah, you know, so these kids are given to the Jedi and put on that path at such a young age that they, they don't have parents most of their lives. And then they have this person who comes along and selects them and makes them the most important person to them for the next 10 years or however long it takes to, to be ready for the trials. So yeah, this person is, is their parent. They're, they're one person in the in the whole galaxy that is theirs and theirs alone at that point. So right. yeah, to, to lose that and, and to feel like you let them down, even though you did exactly what you were supposed to do. Yeah, the guilt is, is huge. And of course he would feel oh, yeah. like a coward, but he, of course he's not. No, he's just a little boy. The Jedi, you know, there's always a, you know, preach against attachment, but the, like Nico was saying, this is the one person they were allowed to have an attachment to. Exactly. Even though they had to kind of give that up once they took the trials and their master moved on and they moved on. But, you know, I think Obi-Wan always had a connection to Qui-Gon and I think we know that Anakin always had a connection to Obi-Wan because, you know, episode four, <laughs> there's a presence I haven't felt in a long time. Yeah. You know, so I think that the way the Jedi are structured and is as basically what Nico said is, you know, you go in and sometimes before you're even a toddler, you're turned over to the Jedi after they've discovered you and, and you that's that's your life. And the only the only adult figures become by virtue of, you know, process of elimination, these are your parents. These mm-hmm. are the people who raise you. That's what a parent does, biological or not. Your parents are the one who raises you. And these kids do get attached to their masters very quickly. 
Exactly. So it's, it was just, oh God, heartbreaking to see Kanan just, you could see the emotion in his eyes. You could see it, you know, all those doubts he had about himself just kind of, and the, the Inquisitor doing what he does so well, it's getting in and getting that little piece and just picking at it. Brain cells and just like, you did this, you did this, you failed, you failed, you failed. And it's like all those doubts and insecurities, just that's what he's so good at bringing out. Yep. I, I love the Inquisitor for that just because he's so single focused, just evil. Yeah. Got really <laughs> with him. that lightsaber fight he had with Kaden. Oh. I mean, that was great stuff. Oh my god, that scene just made me cry because it was it was like an echo of my favorite scene in Phantom Menace, and the music cue was perfection. Yeah, and the animation on that spitting lightsaber was just beautiful. It made it kind of a strobe effect, and I was just and I mean, with Ezra falling, like Obi falling, but Obi was able to get back up. Right. Well, because he was trained actually as a Jedi, but I just that whole scene just was like I watched that just that scene repeatedly because it was so beautiful and I love how they brought in the John Williams Duel of the Fates for that scene yeah, yeah. And I thought that like right when the scene started because <laughs> hearing that music in my head because mm-hmm. it started and I was like oh yeah it's awesome I mean physically the environment mimicked Naboo's that uh, inner chamber of the Naboo palace and the double you know going up against the bad guy with a double-sided lightsaber and two you know a master and his apprentice and it was just it was just a beautiful homage I think to Phantom Menace and I you know I've heard some people say oh they were ripping it off I like, no, I don't think so. I think it was like, I think it was a tribute. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the, the best lightsaber fights in the whole thing. Good. Yeah. The whole original trilogy. A lot, a lot of people say they really like that one a lot better than what we got in Revenge of the Seth. Yeah. yeah for, I think for a lot yeah, of people, it's the only redeeming quality of Phantom Menace is yeah. the Darth Maul stuff, but specifically Qui-Gon and Darth Maul's, their duel, and then finished off with Obi-Wan coming in and his duel with Darth Maul. Right. I think you have a character like Darth Maul and you have someone physically portraying him like Ray Park mm-hmm. it's going to be beautiful I mean that guy is just brilliant he's a brilliant stuntman even though he didn't voice Darth Maul that was Peter Serafinowicz he just really like embodied that character and right. he was just just the, oh, yeah. the expressions and I mean the makeup helps but um, Ray Park is just such a great guy and he's so amazing at what he does I kind of hope maybe they bring him back a little for the, the new trilogy in some way yeah and what was uh, about this lightsaber fight I mean the other thing that was great it was just a great character moment mm-hmm. I mean like Kaden going in there and he you know used the lightsaber ask, you know, a blaster and a sword while fighting. Mm-hmm. And as we're going, you know, oh my god, you know, I never thought of that. Right. And then, you know, Kate, Kate, Kate I have nothing awful. to fear after, uh, you know, after he thought he lost Ezra. That was just, I mean, that was great stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really was saying, you know, Ezra taught Kate to be his own person. And I really liked that. I thought it was a great study of showing how a master can learn from, you know, his apprentice yeah. and vice versa. I, I thought it was also like, uh, Kate and finally not holding back. Yes. And letting out, letting out the Jedi in him. Yes. You know, Kanan was actually finally able to let go because I think he'd been holding so much of himself back. Yes. Because yeah. he didn't, one, you don't want to be noticed being a Jedi at this time in history. And, yeah. you know, there's, I think there's a lot of guilt that he still has over being a Jedi. Yeah. I mean, as far as we know, he never took trials. You know, he, he was very young when, so he's, he's not confident in himself as a Jedi. And this was his chance to finally say, you know, I am a Jedi like my master before me. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And Dan, you asked about masters learning from yeah. their apprentices. I, that's always the case always they are always learning from their padawans almost as much if not more than they are teaching being a jedi is a lifelong journey of self-discovery but also of discovery in the force and when teaching and training someone as a master they will find new ways to understand the force or connect to the force to help their apprentice because apprentices might see the world and the force differently than their master does and it's the job of the master to see what the apprentice sees and help them to connect to the force so each person's experience with the force is unique and the master has to learn more about the force and be a good mentor by 
by understanding his Padawan's connection and understanding their own connection to the Force. So I think that has been going on all season for Kanan with Ezra. But when he thought he lost Ezra and realized that he no longer had anything to fear, especially because his only fears really were to fail Ezra as a master and lose Ezra, and both those things had apparently happened, he was freed in the Force, as uh, Nikki was saying. was he, he was freed from his fear, and he could be that full Jedi. The Inquisitor had been taunting him earlier about his fear to even wear his lightsaber in public, and now he was he had lost his apprentice. He had lost all fear because of that. So I'm not so sure that that was something he learned from Ezra so much as the situation allowed him to become that freed individual and fully embrace his Jedi, as Nikki was saying. Nikki put it perfectly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I totally agree. As a teacher myself, if you're on a constant journey and your, your students do teach you more than you could ever teach them because they teach you how to teach. They teach you how to be a better teacher because what works for one student might not work for another student. So you have to learn a new way and that new way could influence more students in yep. the future. And I think even Qui-Gon after his after he died was still evolving as a Jedi because he, you know, we know that in Revenge of the Sith, he he reached out to Yoda and said, hey, I've discovered this new thing. How to be truly become one with Force. Right. And I was like, okay, so we're, we are always evolving and always learning. And I think George Lucas being such a huge proponent of education through the George Lucas Education Foundation and other charity work, he really respects teachers and that comes through with the respect paid to the Jedi. And I think that it's Dave, Dave Filoni and Simon Kinberg and all the guys working on Rebels have really followed that up beautifully. Oh yeah, for sure. Quite we got to remember, it is a kid's show. It is not good kids that work. Right. Right. And that always makes the uh, <laughs> sensors happy when they do that sort of thing as well. Right. There's, for a kid's show, there's an awful lot of killing though. Yeah. But I, I don't remember this much done. death on Clone Wars. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I do think it's technically done. Oh, definitely. The other thing is, kind of, I was watching a documentary about George Lucas called The People versus George Lucas. Yeah. Kind of the guy, one of the guys that was interviewed on there, he's like, well, you need two things when you do Star Wars. He obviously needs stars, because you need wars. <laughs> so people are going to die. So, I mean, I think that's just a part of it. You know, it, it's a part of our society. That's what happens. Right. And I, right. right. And I think, you know, kids at a very young age learn about war and stuff and kind of realize that happens. I mean, you know, it's, it's that show to a graphic degree, you know, when you're like first or second grade talking about the Revolutionary War. But I think, you know, the kids are always told this does happen. Especially depending on where they're living and where they grow up, it could be a part of their daily life. Exactly. Exactly. Like it is for the people of Lothal and other various outposts. Right. And again, I was watching Star Wars. I saw the original film probably when I was, you know, about that age. So, you know, I, I was exposed to it. So I, I don't see anything wrong with continuing to expose it to them now. Yeah, one of my first films was when I was six, and it was Empire Strikes Back. Right. So talk about a, a, a warlike episode. I mean, the whole well, battle of Hoth, and, you know, it's, it's just made such profound impact on me. When I was a kid, I loved movies like Terminator and Robocop, because those are horrendously violent. Because I probably saw those movies when I was like four or five years old. Oh, my goodness. Now, finishing the discussion about the lightsaber battle, just before the Inquisitor plunged to his death, after being defeated by Kanan, he said something around the lines up. There are things far more frightening than death. It kind of reminded me of, you know, Obi-Wan saying that famous line to Vader, if you strike me down, I will become more powerful than you could ever imagine. You know, based on this correlation, could he come back and haunt the rebels as a ghost, or is this the kind of thing where, you know, he's going to come back and he's going to survive this encounter? What did he do by these last words? No, he, he's dead. I think what he meant was that having the Inquisitor hang on or survive this encounter with Kanan after such a failure, you know, having captured this Jedi and then let him go, or rather allowed him to escape, 
it really was a problem for the Inquisitor because he knows that Vader and the Emperor will not suffer this failure. He knows what they could do to him is to him worse than death. And that's sort of a okay. critical difference mm-hmm. between an Inquisitor and a full-fledged Sith. A Sith sees death as an absolute. They'll do anything they can to avoid it because there's nothing for them after death. And they know this. That's why the Emperor is so obsessed with trying to prolong his own life, trying to find immortality, why he clothes himself so many times. Because if he dies, he loses all his power. He can't see a way to be part of the eternal existence of things and just selflessly be a part of it like Obi-Wan can and like Yoda can. They're opposites. The Sith and the Jedi are opposites. So the Inquisitor chose death because it was easier than facing the penalty for his failure. He's definitely afraid of Vader and knows he would probably die at his hands anyway. And that's why he tells Kanan there are far worse things than death. He gives in to that death, but he doesn't do it like Obi-Wan, surrendering in a poetic way, sacrificing himself for the greater good. The Inquisitor does it out of fear. He's afraid. He doesn't want to die at someone else's hands and, and be tortured beforehand, essentially. So he, he decides to take his own life or to, to, to fall to his death. And Dave Filoni, the executive producer and director of the series, said that with regard to the Inquisitor, it's not accidental the way he perishes. And he does perish. This isn't me being sneaky or clever, having him fall off screen. I know that once Darth Maul got cut in half, pretty much everyone was like, he could be alive. He could still be alive. <laughs> but well, then he kind of turned out to be. Right, exactly. But, Which is the one thing I just was like, oh, come on, Clone Wars. Yeah. But Dave Filoni said he doesn't see that happening with the Inquisitor. He felt it would have been a bigger impact, almost not just for the villains, but for Kane himself to have the Inquisitor die in front of his eyes, you know, see him. So Dave Filoni is saying the Inquisitor is dead and not coming back, though he did say he didn't see Ahsoka coming back either last year at Comic-Con. So <laughs> you got to take him at it, you know, his word with a grain of salt because he might just be trying to preserve a secret. But I'm going to I'm gonna go ahead and say, I think this is a death. I don't think they want to yeah. pull the Darth Maul again because a lot of people, like Nikki said, had such a strong negative reaction to them bringing him back. They love the idea but at the same time it was like oh come on that was such a great and iconic death and it was an important moment for Obi-Wan so I, I agree you know it, it was fun to see almost like an Earth 2 version of Darth Maul yeah. so yeah. but yeah I, I think the Inquisitor yeah. is dead I don't think he's coming back yeah he's kind of like a season one big man to take the Buffy approach yeah to this I totally agree and um, I think unfortunately as much as I love the deliciously evil Inquisitor and Jason Isaacs did such a wonderful job voicing him I'm sad to say I also believe that he's perished and I think Filoni wouldn't have used perished yeah unless he meant it I think that he I mean the Inquisitor has been the torturer of Jedi for years under the orders of the Emperor so he knows what's coming to him if he fails Vader and the Emperor yep. he, yeah. he knows that what he has done to other Jedi will be done to him and probably tenfold because Vader, you know, is a little more powerful and you get the whole force choking thing and the Emperor has the whole lightning thing. But sadly, I think he has he committed suicide by Jedi and it was a really amazing, you know, it was a great scene as much as I hate losing that character. But I think Kanan has kind of finally seen the rebel light in a sense where he's kind of been involved in the rebellion, but not really. He's, you know, they're mostly at the beginning they were like, we need money yeah. and we have to smuggle and we have to do this. And Hera was really the the, the rebel in the group with you know obviously with Sabine but Zeb and Kanan were just like let's do, do what we got to do to survive and it wasn't until Ezra that he kind of found more of a purpose and now he's commit I think this commits him more to Ezra and more to the rebel alliance it was a great scene it was beautifully animated and just really I was just like my mouth was open the whole time going oh my god and then again I was like please don't bring him back I don't want him on creepy little spider legs <laughs> 
Maul because I love Darth Maul and I was like, that that's a death. That that's a death for the ages. And like you said, Nico, it takes away from Obi Wan's victory. Yeah. You know, Obi Wan like he avenged his master and now you're going to bring him back on little metal spider legs? No, 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 no. No, that was that was the one the one big misstep I felt about Clone Wars. So hopefully the Inquisitor will not come back. And as he's not a Jedi or a Sith, even though he uses the the lightsaber, I don't think he can become a force ghost and possibly come back the way Obi-Wan did. I just I think he's just gone. Yeah, that takes Our- such a mastery of the force that the Inquisitor might be good at the battle, might be good at using a lightsaber, but as an Inquisitor, he does not have an understanding, even the level of understanding that a Sith does. And right. you know, the Sith can't become those ghosts either. I mean, some of them have found ways to trap their spirit in a holocron or something of that nature, but they don't believe in life after death in the sense that they can't see themselves giving themselves up to that. They want to hold on to their power. They want to consolidate their power and they, they, they just can't see sharing it with someone else like a Jedi does. So I They're constantly trying to achieve immortality. Exactly. I mean, that was the whole story of Darth Plagueis, the wise, mm-hmm. um, or Darth Plagueis, the crazy, as I like to call him. Yeah. Um, is they don't want to die. They want to live forever and they want more and more and more and more power, power, power. And that's what makes the Sith the Sith. It's absolute. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Yep. Yeah. They are absolutely corrupted. And yeah, I mean, go back to what we were calling legends of Star Wars. Um, the, the Emperor clones himself multiple times. Yep. In fact, you know, yes, there's does. there's a child, you know, a small, a tiny little version of the Emperor that Lucas deals with mm-hmm. in uh, Heir to the Empire. Was it Heir to the Empire? That, I, that um, sounds about right. I think that might have been the, the one that when they do that. Was that also when he has to face Seaboth as yes. well? Yeah, I think so. As much as I try to forget some of the novels. Um, <laughs> well, the early ones were pretty good. The early ones were good, and anything by Timothy Zahn was, was absolutely was really good. I loved Timothy Zahn. Kevin, Jan- Kevin Anderson's Jedi Knights, the Jedi Academy yeah, trilogy uh, stories. But a lot of a lot of the novels, I am very glad to say, have been jettisoned. <laughs> yeah. I mean, get rid of Rogue Planet. I want that gone because that's when Chewie dies, and for stupid reason. Yeah. Um. Well, look, we're gonna save Anakin Solo. Oh, guess what? We're gonna kill him in the next book. <laughs> What's the freaking point? Was it the but next yeah, book, or was it a couple down the line? It was no. It was the next book. Oh, that is that is brutal. I didn't remember that's it what, was that. I I threw it across the room. I remember this very very vividly. Wow. Yeah. That book across the room. After that happened, I was like, well, then what was the freaking point? Yep. Well, I, okay. I still kind of can't forgive him for Mara Jade and Jason Solo and all that stuff too. I liked the twins when they were younger. It's when yeah. you know when Jason became Darth Cadus. Having role played uh, Jason's daughter. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! Wow. Alana. Nice. Uh, I you know I have I I did love the character of Jason, but I thought the Tenelkoff storyline was a little. I was like, wait a minute, you're you're a lot older than Jason because you were in the courtship of Princess Leia. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you are as old as his mom. <laughs> But she was a pretty awesome character in the Jedi Academy stuff. She was. I like the character of Sonkov. Because you um, one armed lightsaber really Jedi. It was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that lightsaber's book where that happens to her. That's a cool story. Yeah, it is. All right. Well, again, we're going to move on to some other characters. Glider characters, I guess. Because <laughs> Chopper, I mean, once again, came through in the clutch, reminding us to never underestimate a droid in the Star Wars universe. And he brought in the cavalry to help the rebels make their breathtaking escape from Tarkin's Star Destroyer. Do you guys both love how this kind of grumpy little droid, who seems like his only purpose, gives to be a pain in the butt keeps coming in to save the day <laughs> I, I do I think that he is the closest thing we have to R2 even though in Droids of Distress we did get R2 he is snarky and sarcastic in his little beast of boot but he also kind of has his own idea about the best way to handle things and he's a very particular fussy little droid and <laughs> yes, I love yes. how his little hands are so his little fingers are so expressive and sometimes you can actually kind of tell what he's saying he's like uh oh he's probably my favorite character on the show as, as right now besides Sabine I love that he knew how to get in contact with Fulcrum and that <laughs> 
he's obviously been watching. We also don't know how long he's been with Hera. Right. And if he's gone with her to these places and has his own way of contacting. But it was, Vulcan was a little surprised to be contacted by Chopper. Well, he's, you know, it's kind of like the whole, you know, help me, help me, I'll be over. You're my only help. Exactly. Same kind of deal. And, yeah. And, you know, he, he knew what was best. He knew the right way to save him. And maybe, unfortunately, for a young rebellion, it was to show their hands so soon. But we also don't know how long this rebellion's been going on. And, and he was like, okay, you know what? My people are in trouble and I need to save them, but I can't do it by myself. I need to bring in the big guns. I need to bring in Fulcrum and Fulcrum will know what to do. And Fulcrum did. And then now we know that the rebellion is a lot bigger than just this small band of, of smugglers and the people who listened to General Traven's, you know, lies. Never forgive that man. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's actually an organized, vast entity and that has Corellian blockade runners, which made me tear up a little bit. Because yeah. I was like, maybe one of those is the Tantive Four. Oh my God. So I, I love Chopper. I love everything he does. I love his attitude, especially the penultimate episode when he just shoved that Imperial droid <laughs> down. He's like, yeah, no. That was right, my yeah. favorite Chopper moment, I think, so far. Definitely. I think like, there were more to come, but yes. Yeah, it was like, yeah, we like him. We're going to keep him. Nope. <laughs> he was like a cat. He, he reminded me a lot of a cat a lot of the time because he does his own thing. He really doesn't care. But in the end, he always comes back. <laughs> yeah. See, Nico, so. that's why you like uh, R2 more because she's more like a dog. Yeah. Because I know you're more of a dog lover. I am. Um... R2's, R2's more intelligent and he's more kind of, he's just been around a lot. lot. Well, Chopper's obviously been around a while. <laughs> But he's, you know, they're both, they both have kind of the same personality, if I could ascribe that word to a droid, and the same kind of attitude. Like, yeah, these humans don't know what the hell they're doing. We have to come in and save the day. Yeah, I I, I said in the last episode that I was not a huge Chopper fan, but I I think he is growing on me. I like R2 better because I always felt like R2, despite being his own, having his own plan and doing his own thing, always had the best interests of the team. And in the last couple episodes, we've seen that of Chopper. But very early on, he was always the prankster. He was always causing problems by pulling pranks on people and then it would screw up the entire mission or it would, you know, at least make things more difficult on the mission. So like that stuff kind of irked me and maybe made me a little less of a Chopper fan. But lately he has been much more mission focused on the mission and, you know, doing good stuff for it. So I am starting, he is starting to grow on me and I am starting to see him as more than just a prankster. I guess, you know, that, that personality fits in with this crew so it's okay but <laughs> it just it didn't work so well for me early on in the series I could totally understand that and being you know R2 is probably in my top three favorite characters uh, from the from anything Star Wars it is kind of hard to for me I felt like a little bit at the beginning I was kind of like betraying R2-D2 by saying oh my god I love Chopper and I was like oh but I love R2 can I love them both is it possible and yes it is possible to love them both and it does not diminish my love of R2 but yeah R2 was very much focused on the team and helping the team throughout, no matter what he had to do. And even if he had to pull something out of his own trash can, it, it was for the good of the team. And it's like, yeah, he always knew better, whereas Chopper at the beginning was like, yeah, I'm just going to do my own thing. And if you guys want to, you know, if it affects you guys, whatever. That's why he's like cat-like to me. But, you know, with the next last episode, where he like allowed himself to be painted to go onto the Star Destroyer to find out what was going on, I thought, you know, he was becoming more of a team player, rather than our comic relief. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think the last big thing we're going to talk about here, because the shocker that ended this episode, oh, God. which was just awesome and had me cheering pretty loudly. Yeah, again, Nico, I know you said that there was absolutely no way this was going to happen. <laughs> but uh, guess what? I called it because Ahsoka from Star Wars The Clone Wars crossed over to this show by revealing herself as Falco, which was crazy. And I was so happy because it finally fell in a gaping hole that's been haunting me for a while. You know, I, I was so fired up for that Netflix extra episode of Clone Wars because I thought, yes, they're going to explain it. Their stories 
was going to get wrapped up because then there was nothing. Right. Mm-hmm. There was like that stupid Jedi vision that Yoda had, and I was like, what the heck? <laughs> yeah, so, I often wondered what happened to Ahsoka, why we're, why she's never mentioned again. Yep. And I also, but I'm more, I, I, I always worried about Captain Rat and Echo. And they, they were my favorites of the clones. And so I was like, what happened to them? Oh my God, are they dead? And did they turn? I want them to not have turned on Order 66. But yeah, Ahsoka's never been a character I particularly cared for that much. My best friend calls her El Dopa Dano. I just felt like she was kind of annoying little teenage brat. But She grew on me as she matured throughout the show. I agree. Exactly. She she did that to me. And when I saw her as Fulcrum, I was like, oh my gosh, she's she's all grown up and she doesn't have that annoying voice, even though it's still Ashley. She's not grading on me. And I was like, she's actually done something with her life. And how must, I want to know what it feels like for her to know that Darth Vader is her master or what, you know, Anakin has become Darth Vader. Her master has turned it so completely to the dark side. There's so much now I want to know. I want to have a talk with her. You know, <laughs> yeah, I want to sit down and say, I want to be the David Frost and just sit there and say, okay, <laughs> now what was your reaction? Where were you when, when Anakin went to Mustafar? Why is it that we didn't hear about you between episodes two and episodes, between episodes two and episodes three? Because that's when Clone Wars is supposed to have taken place. You know, right. there's this whole thing that happened, this whole, all these years that happened of the Clone Wars. And yet your master never mentioned you once. How did you feel about that? <laughs> um, and if I were a Ahsoka, I'd say, well, he, he is a Sith, so. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And again, we don't know how much she knows. Nico and I were kind of debating that and talking about the penultimate episode. We're yeah. Not sure I, how much I, she knows or what's going on or if she knows she, Obi-Wan and Yoda are still out there or whatnot. I think she does because Bail is, you know. That's what I said. A part of it. And I, I don't think he would divulge where they were and Ahsoka wouldn't ask. Right. Because you of, of all the Jedi that, I mean, these are the two that you want to protect the most because they're the two most senior left and the two most powerful left besides Anakin, of course, but he's, he's gone to the dark side. Right. When I said that I wanted to see Ahsoka have a relationship with the young Leia, possibly as well, because I thought that would be fun to see as well. I don't know if they could go there, but... Well, if she's, you know, in with... I mean, Bale might be trying to shield a young Leia at this point, but it's very possible because now we know the two know each other. Yep, right. So it's possible that Ahsoka has some, you know, has had contact with Leia. Not Luke, obviously, but um, but now this is canon, so who knows? Yeah. Well, Dan, I said a little bit ago, the only reason that I was so adamant that Ahsoka was not going to be in Rebels, especially season one, was because we were essentially told that flat out by the producers at the panel at Comic-Con. So uh, was I surprised? You're damn right I was surprised by this. Was I pissed? They lied. Was I pissed at being lied to? Not even a little bit. Not even a little bit. This was so they great. Do that. I loved it. Yeah, I don't care that they lied to me. I mean, it made me a little bit, a little bit, you know, like, oh, come on. Oh, this is so awesome. <laughs> but you kind of ask what, what her presence means to the show. And I think it means that the Rebel Cells will, will each be going on bigger and more important missions for season two. I think season yeah. one was like a new hope. Season two will be more Empire Strikes Back for our heroes. They will start to yeah. pass through this part of their journey and things will become ratcheted up, more exciting, more adventure, but also darker, more dangerous like you'd expect. I think Ahsoka will be leading that fight and maybe assigning the missions like we saw a little bit in this season, but in a more open way. At least for us as viewers, she's going to be a more open character. It, it won't be the cloak and dagger of hiding her existence. You also were kind of wondering, and we've kind of talked about a little bit on your thoughts on Ahsoka yeah. and Vader going head to head. I think that seems more like a series finale sort of thing, or at least maybe a season two finale if before the series finale, but I don't yeah. see it happening just in the middle of a season. And the question of whether anyone is 
is aware of Vader comes to mind. Most common Imperial citizens and even officers probably have no knowledge of him. Even high-level officers probably only know about him in rumors and urban legends because he's not military. He is part of the fanatical side of the Empire and few who encounter him live to tell the tale. So my guess is that besides Bill Organa and Ahsoka, maybe, I, I'm pretty sure she does, but between those two knowing of Vader's existence, I doubt many other rebels do. I'm not sure on Kanan. We talked about that last episode about like why he said Mustafar is where Jedi go to die and maybe he knew about the fall of Anakin but I, I just don't see many people in the galaxy actually knowing of Vader's existence he's kind of an urban legend and I think yeah I think that the rebels are going to fight out about him for the next couple seasons yeah but also I think he's so far outside anyone in the Rebel uh, rebels league that I would say they are like level 10 fighters and Vader's a level 100 and could easily defeat them all at one time so I don't see anyone going head to head with Vader remember this is right it's going to be more like like you know, get spaceships and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, this is not his like story. This is not Vader's yeah. story. This is the Rebels' story. So I think that if they do encounter Vader, it will be like Luke, Leia, and Han on the Death Star in A New Hope. They best run for their lives. I, I don't think anyone can go head-to-head -head with him. So I think it would be amazing to see Ahsoka and Anakin slash Vader face one another, but I'm not sure this is the right time or the right story to see that. I, I guess we'll see if that comes, but... I feel like it needs to happen, though. I think there needs to be... I think, Dan, I think you're right. I think there needs to be, even though I don't really believe closure exists, psychologically speaking, it, there needs to be a closure of the story. And just so she knows and he, she can see what has happened. What And also, it's like a morality tale. This is what happens when you go to the dark side. I think that because Obi-Wan knew what happened to Anakin and he probably told Bail and Yoda when Yoda knew because he's Yoda he knows everything yeah right um, I think that maybe more of the rebels know Vader of Vader's existence maybe they've not encountered him maybe they've only maybe they've heard rumors but I think that he might have been used like oh, we. this is now who we are fighting we are fighting the Emperor and this guy right. who used to be a Jedi so we have to be doubly careful because he can sense things that maybe the Emperor can't and he is because Come. He has gone from one of the greatest Jedi to the one of the greatest Sith Lords, and we really need to be up our game a lot. So I think that he might be more like, like you were saying, kind of like a mythical kind of like oh, like the boogeyman kind of figure. You know, don't yeah. piss off your parents or the Vader will come. But I think more of them know that there is a Sith Lord who is the right hand of the Emperor who used to be a Jedi, and that's why we have to be more we have to be more aware. We have to be more on our toes. Okay, right. Um, and we have to hide even more until we're ready to show our hand, we have to stay kind of more in the shadows because if he even senses that we're out there, he will do to us what he did to the Jedi to systematically hunt them down. And, you know, and if any Jedi survive the attack at the temple and Revenge of the Sith, they know the Anakin. So I think that it's more, I think he's more known. I think maybe his, that origin is known, but I I think he's kind of like, kind of what Nico was saying, he's kind of like that shadowy figure that nobody knows that much about. And that is a rumor. He's like, is this real? Did this really happen? And with all the reports of Vader hunting down Jedi maybe throughout the galaxy, it might be more well known than, than we think, but I don't think he's, I don't think he like widely known but once he shows up somewhere you're going to know who it is it's like oh it's true there is that guy yeah. look at him he's a walking he's a walking iron monk you know with severe asthma issues <laughs> right. which, I which I respect to someone with horrible asthma issues but I do think that Ahsoka knows and I know that you know we know obviously that Bale and Obi and Yoda know yeah. um, I think she probably was told by Obi-Wan let it happen because out of respect for her relationship with Anakin I think she he felt she deserved to know what it happened but yeah I, I'm kind of torn on that I would love to see a showdown with Ahsoka and Vader, except that's instant death for Ahsoka because look at Vader. Vader's so powerful. I mean, there's just no way. <laughs>
that she could survive. But I do want backstory, just like I want with some of the clones. I don't, I really don't yeah. want Rex and Echo, especially, to have fallen. Well, under... they could be some of the rebel cell leaders, baby. Yeah, I just, that order six, uh, part of me, you know, I was like, I hated that they killed Echo in Clone Wars, because I just love that character. Yeah. And I, he was part of the role playing group, was one of the characters in Echo. And I don't want to see him, and especially Rex, turn against Jedi. I agree. Um, so part of me hopes that maybe Rex lost his life during the Clone Wars, or had out-aged, because they were aging at three times their normal rate, or had aged out, and just it hadn't happened, that he didn't get the order. Or he overcame it, because he is that awesome. Yeah, that's true. Because it's true. I've he talked is... to him at Celebration, and, well, some of the guys from my Legion, from the Final yeah. First, I was like, okay, what happened? And they're like, no, we never got the order. <laughs> there you go. There you go. But I mean, I mean, I'm excited to see where all this leads with Ahsoka. It's, it's got me very excited for season two. God, I like how both shows are bridged, because yes. I really enjoy both of them. And they don't that, rely that too much on Clone Wars, which I love. Right, but it still works as a sequel that's satisfied. Mm-hmm. And again, Star Wars fans hate when continuity doesn't match up, there's a giant bubble or something like that. So yes, thank you, creators, for resolving that <laughs> with Ahsoka. Thank you. I can't tell you how much I beg you, you know, how much I want to beg you guys to do this and get in it. So thank you. So I think that wraps it all up. Dico, was there anything else you wanted to say? No, or? I think this has been good. I think it's, we, uh, it's really we dove deep, got a lot of good stuff. Yep. And thank you so much, Nikki, for coming on and, you know, making our discussion all the more intense and, and, and better because we could dive deeper because your knowledge of Star Wars is so, so vast and so much yeah. better than even mine. And I considered myself a Star Wars Jedi master in knowledge. So I see the title <laughs> and I, I anoint you our Jedi Grandmaster. Oh, thank you very there much. There we go. It's a 30 year passion. You know, I've been in love with this whole series since I was six years old. And to me, it was one movie because I didn't know about the right. other one. Um, <laughs> I was like, oh, if I was like that, yeah, this is fantastic. And it really, I have an emotional and sentimental attachment to it, especially that film plus the best one. And Star Wars has just been my passion, like I said, since I was six. So I've just immersed my life with Star Wars. I mean, I'm staring here in my bedroom and I'm like, Star Wars, Star Wars, Star Wars, Star Wars, Star Wars. So it was great fun for me to come on and talk Star Wars with you guys. And I love that we were able, like you said, get so deep and talking yeah. about it with the big Star Wars fans. And maybe someday we will all play Star Wars Shooting Up Pursuit because nobody else will play with me. <laughs> I have the same problem. Nobody else will play with me. They make me answer two cards <laughs> every time I land somewhere and then they get mad when I win. <laughs> Yeah. I'm so happy to be able to use all this probably useless knowledge of Star Wars and to be able to talk about it with people who love it. Well, we're we're most definitely going to probably have you come back again to probably talk more Star Wars Rebels with us when it comes back. And of course, when episode seven rolls around, I think we all may need to have a podcast to talk oh, about that or hype that. So I'm um, very happy to, to come back whenever you guys need. Great. That's our plans for the future. So, that'd be <laughs> so thanks for joining us. And we're going to move on now to our sitcom section. Okay. Thank you, guys. All right. Well, I'd like to thank our special guest Nikki for joining us once again for this great discussion we know you guys enjoy her input and stuff on the Helicarrier and Agent Carter podcast since she's such a huge Star Wars fan I wanted to get her input here just to give you guys something really special to you know cap off this great first season of Star Wars Rebels and I just cannot wait for season 2 so get ready folks KTA will continue their Star Wars discussions once Star Wars Rebels returns so with that we're going to move into our sitcom section and we're going to kick things off with a new girl episode that was filled with guest stars entitled Walk of Shame Hey girl, what you doing? Hey girl, where you going? Who's that girl? Who's that girl? 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 It's just 
After an all-night party at Bearclaw's, Jess and Cece return to the loft to find an old acquaintance, while Coach doesn't think he's ready to introduce his classy new girlfriend to Nick and Winston. Alright, so this episode, I think what was funny was, you know, the walk of shame is always something that has comedic potential. And I think the two things that made me laugh about it was the musical that Jess created with Bearclaw, instead of, you know, sleeping with him. You know, their whole one-night stand was basically doing this musical. That was hilarious. Because they just, Jess and Long, unexpectedly showing up on this episode. Yeah. Okay, we discover that he lost his job, that he's kind of doing a walk of career because he's now a clown and I thought was pretty funny stuff and just how he kind of flipped out about being a clown and lost his job and stuff really really funny stuff and a great cameo from him because while well as Josh Gann who showed up was hilarious as Bear Claw this episode especially during the closing credits so Nico what was your favorite comedic moments? Yeah my favorite comedic moments from this week's New Girl were the musical that Jess and Bear Claw made up rather than sleeping together and the continuation at the end of the episode about the gay wolf with musical instruments was a great payoff at the end Owls and squirrels and deer Raccoon and, and caribou Get out of here, you're not welcome! Get out of here! Get out of here, caribou, caribou! I'm just a dumb old tree. No, you're not, take it back. Nobody ever pets me. Cause you're just a tree. They just eat my nuts. Eat my nuts, eat my nuts! The forest is very lonely for a thing. Yeah, he just wants to be accepted, mate. Yeah, got it. Love that. He runs with the pack all day long. Uh, Inside of him is a sad, sad song. He's a gay wolf all alone. Wait, I'm a gay wolf too. Would you like to eat some wolf Chinese food? Only if he's gay. Clap now. I also like the way that Winston is the most embarrassing of the friends with his singing, outfits, crystals, murals, mustache, faux hawk, bells, puzzles, and the cat. And when the guy walked in on them in the bathroom and Winston said, Oh, <laughs> uh, look, it's not what it looks like, my man. Um, we're just trying to squeeze something out of my buddy. We'll be done when it comes out. <laughs> just randomness. So good. So good. That is impressive. But anyway, we're going to move on to an episode of Modern Family that once again returned to its slapstick tactics that made the first three seasons very funny with just an excellent story about Luke, Gad, Fell, and Manny that was just brilliant. So let's talk about Modern Family episode Closet. Go love it. <laughs> Jay and Claire shoot a commercial for Pritchett Closets to counter a rival's splashy ad, but dad and daughter have conflicting creative visions. Meanwhile, Phil, Luke, and Manny try to take down a peeping Tom's drone that's spying on a sunbathing Gloria. Cameron is nervous about Lily's performance in a school talent show, and Haley worries about Andy when he's rushed to the hospital with a, an appendicitis. Yeah, I gotta say my favorite comedic moment was Luke, Manny, and Phil versus the drone. Yep. And how Phil just kept losing his pants. Yep. And he got on YouTube and he got worse because this is a great story with these characters. You know, we are always the huge Luke and Phil fans and love their stories. This was probably 
probably one of the ones that was up there. This is one of the all-star episodes when it came to that. And Gloria getting to be a part of it at the end by coming out and just firing that gun to blow up the drone when Jay and everybody else thought they got it. That was pretty funny. Yeah. That was a great way to cap it off. It was a really well done, fun storyline that just was a great use of slapstick humor. So great stuff. And uh, I think Robbie Abel is beginning to show up everywhere, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. Because he popped up with this. I was like, oh my God, it's Firestorm. Yep. So that's cool stuff. So you go. I mean, what was your favorite comedic moment from this week's Modern Family? Yeah, essentially the same thing, Dan. My favorite comedic moment from this week's Modern Family was Phil's continually losing his pants while finding the drone. I just loved it. Phil losing his shorts, falling into the pool, and Manny saying, and just like that, it disappears. To which Luke <laughs> says, in his defense, the water's really cold. And Manny's bike crash that causes Phil to lose his pants again, great stuff. So really, just the entire drone versus idiot story arc was my favorite for this week. There are those drones. But anyhow, we're going to dive now into a Big Bang Theory episode that was funny because it was very similar to a conflict that was in Glassbeat's Castle. So now that we know Sheldon Castle has a lot of things in common, let's talk about the Big Bang Theory episode, the colonization application. All started with a Big Bang there's trouble in paradise when Amy discovers Sheldon signed up for a one-way mission to colonize Mars, and the two get into a dogfight at a pet store. Meanwhile, Leonard makes a very adult purchase for Penny, and Emily catches Raj snooping in her apartment. I have to say my favorite comedic moment from this episode was uh, Sheldon's video applying <laughs> to the space program yes. to go to Mars. I'm Dr. Sheldon Cooper, and I'd like to tell you why I should be chosen to go to Mars! <laughs> I'm exceedingly smart. I graduated college at 14. While my brother was getting an STD, I was getting a PhD. <laughs> Penicillin can't take this away. Being in close quarters, cleanliness is important. <laughs> my hygiene is impeccable. In fact, animals don't trust me because I smell like nothing. Yeah, literally nothing. <laughs> seven-month space flight, I can keep up morale with my wacky sense of humor. <laughs> hey, Leonard, is there any peanut brittle left in that can? You mean this weirdly suspicious one? Yes. You open it and check. I don't get it. There's actually peanut brittle. <laughs> go to Mars. But on a more serious note, the most important reason I want to go to Mars is that I believe, as a scientist, it's my duty to push the boundaries of human knowledge forward. Now, I know that life on Mars will be difficult, but life here on Earth is no picnic. Also, picnics are no picnic. <laughs> Where should we go for lunch? Oh, I know, the ground. <laughs> In conclusion, thank you for considering me for this journey of a lifetime. To Mars! Afterwards, Leonard blew his nose and pie came out. And him saying, well, you know, I'd be great in space because I have a great sense of humor. Good having, uh, you know, Leonard open that jar of peanut brittle. Because you're thinking, okay, his thing's going to come out. Yep. And then nothing happens. And then uh, Sheldon just rarely throws a pie in the face. Yeah, Leonard. Great stuff. You know, it was it was so, like, classic bozo show. But it fit the show and it was just really funny. Because it just made me laugh. I know it was the stupidest thing. But just really, just, it, it was clever. Yeah. It was clever. Yeah, I totally agree. That was probably my favorite thing. But I also really liked the 
Raj snooping, like surprisingly, that actually made me laugh. And the way that Emily kept joking about murdering people, and then because she was a little bit upset with him for snooping and wanted to pay him back a little bit, she made the whole joke about what's in the closet, and you didn't snoop in the closet, did you? No. Okay. Don't ever go in the closet. <laughs> and then as she turns over to go to sleep, you just see her smiling because she knows that she just made it, so he's he's gonna want to go in the closet. Ah, uh, it was it was actually pretty funny for an Emily arc, which I don't really like. So yeah, I, they used her pretty well in this episode. Yeah, you know. I know we're not a fan of Emily. She kind of adores us, but this was this was pretty good use of her. But I mean, come on, what can top that? Dude? Nothing. Right. No, I mean it was great. I don't know what they were doing with Petty and Butter this week. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't terrible. They weren't bickering. They weren't fighting. It, it, it was it was okay. But again, the episode wasn't about them. So exactly, exactly. All right. So good that believe it or not, folks, that's all the shows we have to cover this week. And uh, it's going to get kind of low next week as well. Um, I think this is because of March Madness basketball, which I'm kind of glad about because we get a hiatus. Can I get to watch the games? Yep. So sorry about that if you don't like basketball, but we will have new Helicarry episodes coming out and got a DC Nation is questionable because Gotham is not going to be back till we don't know when. Just stick with us. We are going to have a show next week. It's just going to be kind of short. So you can tell everybody what we're doing next week. Yeah, next week's episode will have a news with Nico section with all the TV and entertainment news that has come out in the next week and we will continue our coverage of the spring TV season as we review an episode of Person of Interest along with our sitcom section including The Big Bang Theory. So join us next week for both of those shows. Also remember that our entire back catalog is available. If you're just getting caught up on any of the shows we cover, go back and catch Dan and my thoughts on any of those episodes. But for even more reviews and information on all our favorite shows, check out the blogs available on our website at acrosstheairways.com. Now roll that pre-recorded closing. And also, you can check out our spinoff podcast. Kaniko, you want to help me in describing the first one? Sure. The Helicarriers podcast, which is Andy's podcast on our network, dedicated to covering episodes of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. We also have It's Tangent Time, which yeah. is Michael and Wu, and they talk about all kinds of things, geek-related, nerd-related, all the great stuff that we talk about in super in-depth, way more than right. you could do in a single episode of one of our other podcasts. So they dive deep in those episodes and talk about it and sometimes they just go off on major tangents that's why it's called tangent time exactly we also have the back catalog of longbow hunters the arrow podcast which has officially wrapped up but all of our back catalog is available so if you are going back and watching the first two seasons of arrow again you can go back and listen to woo and michael's discussions on any of those episodes and all the new arrow episodes will be along with gotham the flash and Constantine in the new revamped DC Nation podcast, which will be Dan and I talking all things DC. It's going to be awesome. And that will still be available on the regular GTA feed, as well as its own feed on iTunes, just so you're not confused. Yep. And you can also contact our podcast through email, got across the airways at gmail.com, Facebook, Twitter, got across airwaves. There's no on there. It's just across airwaves or Google+. Kaniko, how else can you cut? You can leave a voicemail at 773-809-3363. Give us thoughts, feedback, or a review of any of the shows we aren't currently reviewing, or tell us what you want us to review. You can do all of that by calling 773-809-3363 and leaving a voicemail. And how can you listen to our show if you don't know so already? You can listen to our show through Stitcher Radio, iTunes, and the Mix Radio Network, thanks to our good friend Jack Stifle. And you can also listen to our episodes by visiting our website at www.acrosstheairways.com. All right. So once again, for our other ETA podcast hosts, Nikki Amy, Kenny Babak, Luke Kim, Ken Michael J. Petty, Kai Dan Schmidt. And I'm Nico Reset. Get until our next episode. We'll catch you on the airways. See you guys. Have a great week. And may the force be with you.
Master lives, man. We now return to our regularly scheduled program.